Welcome to the Bad Boss Brief, a strategic guide on how to not be an asshole at work. We'll tell you about bad bosses, how they can be handled, how to tell if you happen to be one. An executive and an executive coach, both artists working in advertising and marketing for more than two decades, are here to advise you on the ins and outs of office environments. The Bad Boss Brief is your ultimate guide to navigating any employment landscape. Here are your hosts, Eugene S. Robinson and Stephanie Payrollo. Welcome to the Bad Boss Brief. I am ah. Stephanie Payrollo. That was enthusiasm. <laughs> Yay! And I'm Eugene S. Robinson. Nice to speak to everyone. Uh, this is episode 14. And today we're going to talk about the new boss. Now, this was an idea that was submitted by a listener. Thank you, listener. You know who you are. And anyone who wants to submit an idea for a show, WTF at Bad Boss Brief. But what my listener was talking, our listener was talking about, was that one of the challenges he saw in his career, and he works at one of the aptly acronymed FANG companies, Mm -hmm. and that he's seen happen is that if you are a really strong IC, which is what they call individual contributors, and you do well, suddenly you get bumped up into management and you are the boss of other people and you have no understanding that it might take a different skill set or a different muscle to manage people than it did for you to do your individual contributor shtick. What do you think? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. In fact, I was an individual contributor uh, at Intel when I was at Intel um, but they didn't move me into a managerial position, but they did so at Apple and uh, started out the same way. So it was always interesting to um, to to be one and stay one, but then to be one and be forced to be the other. In actual fact, my very first job out of college was that way too, and I, I did not want to make the move. And <laughs> One, because it was from one magazine to another. It was from a non-defense magazine to a defense industry magazine. I don't want to have anything to do with defense. And they explained to me very clearly in kind of mafiosi terms that uh, they weren't asking me if I wanted the transfer. They were telling me that they were transferring me. And that was the only option where I to opt out. There's the door. So it's very interesting that, you know, even though it was a, a move up, uh, they still found found a way to reify this idea that you work for us, you do what we say. And so it was good bossing, bad bossing all at once, but they were very distinctly different experiences. So you're right. Well, and what was it like for you, that first kind of management experience out of school? Um, it was, it was uh, difficult. Um, and I, I sort of felt set up for it. Now we're not talking about the defense magazine, but I guess this has happened a lot, the Electric Power Research Institute, where I, I swear to goodness that the sole reason they brought me in was to fire a 55-year-old guy on the staff. They couldn't figure out how to get rid of any other way. And they were like, hey, new guy, right out of college. Now that you are managerial, you got to get rid of uh, a, a Lloyd. And uh, I was like, not. Nah cool with this and of course the guy it made it as difficult as possible the guy started crying i've got a family i've got kids i'm old enough i won't get another job all of which i knew to be true you know um but you know i thought it was a test for me to see if well can you do the hard things at this job in actuality i realized i was tom sawyer yeah no they were not not brave enough to get rid of this guy and just made me do it so yeah i mean they threw you in the deep end yeah, yeah, and so my my take on, uh, so that means that by the time I got to Intel and they tried to move me, or not Intel didn't, uh, uh, App, Apple did. I I resisted the move at first because I'm like I I'm fine here. I don't need. I'm okay. I'm all. I'm okay. And they. <laughs> well, know. in both cases, I mean, what the the listener went on to comment the fact that there's no support given by these large companies for, let us teach you how to manage. Let us teach you how to be a boss. The assumption is that it's something you're sipping in the water that will make it so you can instantly fall into that. And what he suggested is that there are a couple of pitfalls. One is there's just hubris. 
right? Yeah. That that yeah. these new leaders will believe that they can do it just because sure. they're smart guys or you know they're successful so far. And yeah. and a lot of times they don't have humility. Right. Yeah. They, they don't understand, like, maybe I should check it out. Maybe I should see how the dynamics are different working yeah. as an IC than working in sort of a larger group. And it sounds like that organization didn't support you at all by putting you into that difficult position. No. And it was it was probably the, I can comfortably talk about it now. It's probably one of the weirdest jobs I, I've had, the Electric Power Research Institute, uh, because they were under a lot of external pressure because it was right around the time that California had deregulated utilities and, but it was a very staid organization. And <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure you don't think staid and Eugene in the same sentence. So it was a really weird, weird fit fit for me, but uh, I did meet some really cool, cool people there and I actually followed a really cool person there. So, uh, so it, 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 in light of that, that was okay. But yeah, I was not, I was poorly placed in the job. Well, and I had the opposite experience where I was an individual contributor for most of my career, first starting out in sales and then in new business, because an advertising agency, when you run new business, you know, I would have assistants, I'd have maybe one or two people working for me. But as far as like managing a team, I didn't do that until much later. But what I did is I would manage pitches, right? So for those of you who haven't uh, worked in an ad agency before, if you're doing a big national pitch, uh, particularly this was like, you know, 10, 15 years ago in my heyday of doing this, it was like running a Broadway show, right? You had to get people from different backgrounds, different walks of life. There would be people from the C-suite. There would be kind of like, you know, very junior project managers or creatives. And mm -hmm. they had to do all of this spec work, speculative work. You work for free, give us mm -hmm. your creative ideas, and we'll see if we want to hire you to do our tens of millions of dollars of advertising mm -hmm. and media. And so you have a very specific time frame, usually about, you know, like six to 12 weeks mm -hmm. in which to churn out all of these deliverables. And so I learned in that experience how to do the lowly jobs of like making sure everybody is fed, making yeah. sure that, you know, the basic project management up to the highest kind of strategic and then just like, you know, C-suite wrangling, right? Like mm -hmm. we were at one point we were pitching a, uh, I was working at an agency that was pitching a big box retail store. Mm -hmm. And we all converged in one city to do this pitch and the C-suite folks, and this was a global agency. So these, these guys, they were all guys. Um, some of them weren't even from the United States and the ones who in the United States didn't shop at this particular retailer. And I was like, you can't go pitch this particular company if you have never been in one of their stores. And so I huddled them all together and herded them through. You know, I mean, these are men who hadn't shopped for a gallon of milk for many, many years. Right? Yeah, right. right and it right. was actually, it actually ended up being fun. The chief creative officer who was from South Africa was mm -hmm. delightful and curious and, and engaged and was like excited. Like, wow, people really, they shop here. This is where they get their stuff. But it was yeah. this really interesting skill set that I accidentally developed of how to work with all these groups, keep everybody on task and, right. and basically manage all of those egos. Right. So by the time I actually was a manager with a team, I had had lots of experience doing this and it was a relief to me to have a team that I managed consistently over time. Right. Yeah. So I had already, and I was already, I think I had already started graduate school learning how, about management when I actually got that sort of leadership job. So I had the flip of what you had. Also, also, I mean, personality wise, I, I think you probably like, like people more than I do. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, so I, I, I mean, I, I remember my first major uh, kind of managerial deal was with a bunch of Condé Nast people for a men's fashion magazine in Los Angeles. They were ex Condé Nast people. And I, I was constantly in my head rolling my eyes because I was like, I understand that this is an important part of the job, listening to my associate editor explain to me why she was leaving her boyfriend and moving to a new house and why she, but I just, I just didn't care. <laughs> I just, I, I was mono-focused, like I'm on the spectrum that way. I was really focused on an award-winning magazine and all this static about other stuff, but that was an important part of the job. So I was like, ah, yeah. Oh, well, you know, you and it's interesting because I think when you come into management, 
what is your analogy of what a manager does, right? So I know for my dad and talking to him about work, Mm -hmm. it was like a basketball team because he played sports, right? And so he would use, you know, basketball analogies or football analogies because that's, I think that was his framework for work, right? right? For me, my framework was being a parent. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. not in all at all to infantilize people that worked for me, but just mm-hmm. that idea of sort of the give and take and the recognition yeah. that at least at least with my children, you could offer suggestions, but you weren't necessarily in charge all the time. Yeah. Right. And yeah. that idea of knowing when to sort of um, be firmer and knowing when to allow somebody to explore. I, you know, my kids were teenagers by the time I became a manager, and that was always the frame that I used. Did you have a frame of reference? Uh, yeah, of course. That's why I'm smiling because my frame of reference. I've been doing music and musical theater for my the majority of my life. Like since I think the first time I stepped on stage, I was five. So my framework is, you know, and I've been doing band stuff since 1980. So <laughs> as a singer. My, my attitude is really super well suited to an IC, into you know, into individual contributor, I, I, you know, because I, I I don't know what you guys are doing back there, but, but as a singer, yeah, I, uh, you know, somebody made a joke: first to start talking, last to stop talking, and never around to carry equipment, and that is not the definition of team playing at all. So I I, I I've had to make a lot of adjustments, and, and but you know. The thing is, I look at the the bellwethers of whether or not I've been successful. What was my attrition rate like when I like when I was leading a team? Um, how many people did I have to fire? Not just people who said, "Screw this, I'm getting another job." I really don't like this job. And those numbers have been uh, have been blessedly low. So in general, and this is not just I, I'm still in touch with a lot of people who I had managed before. They seem to have enjoyed the experience, despite my obvious shortcomings as a people person. <laughs> yeah, well, no. and I think no. for me, I mean, the, the team that I first managed was they were very young and they were mostly women. Right. And there was a really nice dynamic there. And in fact, many years later, I'm in touch with them. I mean, one of the main reasons I'm on Instagram is just to watch these women with their kids. Now they all have kids and, you know, nice. see what they're doing with their careers. And, you know, I joke about having my own personal old girls network in advertising up and down the West Coast. And so right. for me, it was there was a real sense of connection. Like these were young women that I hoped to mentor and that I really had this hope that their work experience wouldn't be as rife with sexual harassment as mine had been. Right. right? And so I did have a sort of motivation for it. And I think that's what, you know, back to what um, this listener had suggested. I think what he was talking about is the idea that particularly at these larger fan companies, mm-hmm. there are a lot of implicit, like kind of managerial rules And so they're not just not telling you how to fire somebody or some of these sort of like basic training things. They're also not telling you about what it's really like up in that atmosphere, right? And like one of the things that he talked about is that a lot of companies have stack ranking, right? And for those of you that don't know that, what that means is is if I came into Eugene and said, okay, you've got 10 people. Uh, two of them have to be fired. So come up with the bell curve, right? And mm-hmm. and the top ones are going to get a raise. The middle ones are going to get nothing. And the lot, bottom two are going to get laid off, right? So that's, mm-hmm. in a nutshell, kind of what stack ranking is. And it's something, um, you know, that has been, been done kind of infamously over at Microsoft in the day. And it's still very much part of the culture. And what oh, he yeah. was suggesting is that whether or not you have an actual stack ranking system, mm-hmm. a lot of places have that anyway. Right. And part of the challenge for a new boss may be that they are looking at their team as a standalone entity. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe they look at their team and they think, wow, these are all really solid performers. And mm-hmm. if they're not clued into the larger management dynamics, they may not realize that they still have stack ranking and uh-huh. that they are going to have to cut the bottom two people. And, and the challenge and my listener cited a particular example when he came in of, of really feeling like somebody was a strong performer mm-hmm. saying, you've got a great future here in words to that effect. And then finding out that he had done something to piss off somebody in higher management who wanted him gone. Right. Uh, and, and one of the th- dynamics that the listener pointed out that I think is interesting is that a lot of times the people who work for a new boss mm-hmm. will get frustrated because the new boss is not making any waves. But yeah, what right. they may not understand is the new boss is is doing what he or she can to protect the team, which means I can't make big promises to you. 
I can't say that I'm going to give you X, Y, or Z. And so I think that's something for new bosses is to recognize that the air as an individual contributor might be very different than the thin air of, of management, particularly at that executive level. I can't. And also I'm thinking of a situation in which I was being forced to make cuts to my staff and I, I dug in and refused, you know, I mean, it was an attempt to, to mitigate a certain amount of loss to, to cook the books fundamentally for the next purchaser. And, uh, and so they said, okay, well, you won't lay anybody off. We'll lay you off, which is fine. I, I was not, uh, I just, it was a small enough team that we had six people on the team, small enough team. And they were all like really compromised. You know, some had compromised themselves for me got left his PhD program in ethnomusicology, which maybe wasn't going anywhere anyway, and came out to be my associate editor, left his entire life in Indiana, came out, wasn't going to get rid of him, you know, uh, had a 60-year-old uh, uh, creative director, wasn't going to get rid of him, just bought a house, uh, the managing editor whose mother had just died. I mean, I just, there were reasons not to get rid of everybody except for me. So I, I, what I found interesting in the aftermath, of course, they got caught when the there's, you know, due diligence. The company that bought it just under discovered their chicanery and they got in big trouble and it was all clawed back. So it was all for naught anyway uh, on the part of the people who were trying to force me to make the cuts. But I, what I found really interesting, and it's like I kept thinking of Don Rickles, like you want a cookie that the the 60 year old designer had just bought a house. I'd asked him for a very small favor later, right? Fully expecting that he was mindful of the sacrifice I had made for him, uh, uh, I asked him for and to design the cover of my first novel. And he's like, I'm not doing it for free. I, I said, I didn't say anything about free. I'm willing to pay whatever you're charging. He goes, well, I'm really busy. And I was like, ah, I got I got it. The, the, the wages of being the he- heavy as a head that wears the crown. You don't get cookies for this. You don't get cookies for being a nice guy. That's yeah. a new boss trick that you will learn over time. That it, 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 this was maybe twenty years ago. I finally figured out you don't get cookies for this. It's like being a good dad. Like uh, your reward is that your kids are not screwed up. So you know, right. in this and case, I think, yeah. and that's a really good point. I like that line. You don't get cookies for this because I have to say that to a lot of, you know, I've said that more than once to c- clients that I'm doing executive coaching for who are maybe moving into. They've been managers, but they're maybe now executive managers, CEOs, whatever is there is that sense of like, don't they understand, right? And I'm like, no, no, no one, no one really likes the boss. I mean, you might respect the boss, you might come to like the boss, but they're never going to appreciate what it is that you're doing for them, right? right? They're always going to have a sense of you should have done this or whatever. And, you know, I feel like I've heard people say this generation is so entitled through like three generations now. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. And it's not millennials, it's not Gen X, it's not any of those. What it is, is it's employees are not going to like say thank you to their boss for pretty much anything that is that is being done. Right. And, you know, and I sort of understand that if the boss is also the owner and the founder. But a lot of times it reminds me of that great line from Godfather Part Three, the only good line when Michael Corleone is talking to uh, the priest and the priest is like, hey, we have people we have to answer to. <laughs> we have rules. This is a Catholic church. We have very old rules. <laughs> and so as I think about this in connection to, to being bosses, like they, they, unless they're like the owner and the founder, and even then they have a board, they, they're rules. They've got super, like I, I have a certain amount of sympathy for even the bad bosses I've had. Uh, but, you know, the worst bosses I've had, of course, have had nobody to answer to. And that's We've covered that on a past show. Right. Well, just a couple of practical things. If you are a new boss, um, I mean, one of the things that I suggest, particularly to more senior clients, is when you are getting, if you're getting a new job, right, whether mm-hmm. it's a new role in an existing company or moving to a new company, negotiate for some sort of executive coaching or ongoing training yep. when you're coming in the door, right? right. Um which sometimes you can get, sometimes you can't, but ask for that, right? And then I think if you don't have an organization that supports training for people, because most, I mean, I rarely get hired to do Mm -hmm. even trainings for people who are not at the C-suite level, Mm -hmm. you know? And I frequently said to clients, like, you know, let me just do a class. Let me get a cohort of some of these mid-level people 
right? Because the mid-level people are the ones that are really going to make or break you, particularly at larger organizations. And they usually won't do that. So if you can't get that, try to find resources online, right? And, And what I would suggest, some people have had good luck with those kind of Things like Chief, which is an organization for women, yep. and you have cohorts of networking. It's also very expensive and evidently um, a little racist. But you is know, there are yeah, there's been some real concerns that the women who founded it and the people, the women who are in kind of leadership, have mm-hmm. not really been mindful of the concerns and the critiques of of women of color. Right? Uh, and so there's been a, that's a that's a whole nother thing that you can I'm sure Google and find out about. But I think the idea is try to figure out ways in which you can get educated yourself, right? Mm-hmm. There's excellent mm-hmm. podcasts out there. There's a ton of business books. Um, there's different you know, things that you can read on Substack, like, for example, the Consigliere papers, which I write. Um, yep. But you really need to take re- responsibility for learning how to continue to be a better boss. So if you're a new boss, think about, think about those kinds of things. And then do take time to build in feedback loops, right, with yep. your manager, if you you know can find a mentor who's also an executive leadership, but maybe you aren't that person's direct report, try to have feedback loops with the people who work for you, right? Mm-hmm. There's a thing called the skip level, which is you have a one-on-one with the person who works for somebody who works for you. Whatever mm-hmm. the feedback loop is, try to find people who will give you honest feedback, right? Like here, like here's a great example. I was a couple of weeks ago, I was having lunch at a convent with a bunch of nuns. Mm-hmm. And I walked in and there was an empty table. And so I went and I sat down and took out my lunch, which I had brought with me. And I started getting the side eye from a couple of old nuns. And I had no idea what was happening. And I'm like, there's nothing with what I'm eating. And one of the nuns, who's a friend of mine, came over and she said, "Um, that's so-and-so's table. And I'm like, what do you mean? And they said, you know, so-and-so, who's an older nun, always sits in that particular place. Are these one chair at the table or, or what's the problem? Like six chairs at the table, but there was a group. And I think the idea was what I, what the point that I'm making is that the nun that came over to me and said, Hey, here's a convention culturally that you don't know about right. that I am going to let you know as a visitor to this place so that you don't inadvertently fall afoul. Right. And, and the idea is, you know, and, and I use lunch in, in per- on purpose, right? Because there are people who get very attached to something small in a workplace culture, right? Mm-hmm. Who sits in what, ch- what chair in the conference room? Who mm-hmm. uses what thing? And so the idea is trying to find someone who is that cultural guide to you, who can mm-hmm. let you know, here are the things that you wouldn't think are going to piss people off, but that are actually going to piss people off. So like, now I know I never sit at that table. I sit at another table because okay. somebody came in and, and told me that. Okay, okay. I'm hung up on this table thing. <laughs> so hold on. There were multiple chairs at this table. Yes. Were they all filled with people? Under normal circumstances, there is a tight group who sits at a table together uh-huh. Uh-huh. for lunch. Where were they? They were coming in. I got there first. Ah, so they would have come and seen you there. It would have yes. been no room for one of them. It right. Would have been this, I got you. And then so they you didn't want to... So- exclude one of them because they always sit together. Some of them have mobility issues, which I, uh, you know, and they, it's more comfortable for them to be at that particular table. Any of things of these things, which I had known, if there'd been like so you handicap something, I didn't move because nobody else was actually sitting there. They sat at another table, but I've oh. never sat there again. And I okay. think that the, I don't want to belabor the, <laughs> the nuns at lunch story. They're lovely women, but the idea that there can, you can sometimes inadvertently fall afoul. Of certain cultural tropes, and you need this somebody. Is, to this, this is why I mean, you're a people person. I had a guy, and I'm going, no, nah, it's fine, it's fine. I'll just sit on the floor <laughs> because I know this old vow of celibacy thing. You guys are kind of cranky. I, I just, and that would have been my last day working at the convent, I guess. <laughs> Although with my with, with these friends, they probably would have been like, great, come on back. That's all right. We'll sit down okay. on the floor with you. Let's you know, okay. let's all break bread together. So I think the idea is just being mindful that there can be different kinds of culture and try to, you know, be intentional about that. So did you have a, um, do you have a fire me for us? Yeah, I do. Uh, I, I mean, sometimes, you know, in the Valley, you it's it's this weird kind of accretion thing that these things lay on, on top of each other. 
And I'm probably 100% sure that anybody within the sound of my voice at this point or watching um, did, what, did not participate in the cultural event that I participated in on Saturday, which was uh, UFC 290. UFC stands for the Ultimate Fighting Championship, the only sporting event that I pay attention to with any regularity. Now, they're in a tough place. They're owned by Endeavor which Endeavor is what you, William Morris used to be before it started to gobble up the world. Massive agency. Your favorite movie star is probably repped by them. They all, Endeavor has also bought WWE, a, a company that's had sexual harassment problems with the CEO. We'll get into that. The uh, CEO of the UFC was on New Year's Eve, videotaped slapping his wife and kicking her on the floor. They were both drunk, he says, and he owned up to it in that public apology. Not any major change in, in how the corporation is run. So insofar as possible, they find themselves in 2023 having lost all, a lot of their major stars, alienated others. People have left for better paychecks other places and have offended as well. I'm thinking of Conor McGregor, who was recently accused of at the Miami, Miami Heat baseball uh, basketball game, assaulting a woman, sexually assaulting a woman in the bathroom. He has not been fired. Um, but at the, the fights on Saturday... They have a typical cameraman thing that they do where they they uh, you know they go through the audience and they film, oh, is a professional baseball player, professional hockey player. Oh, look, here's an actor. Here's Anthony Kiedis from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And suddenly the camera switches to the uh, uh, multiply indicted former president of the United States of America, Donald Trump. I was like, okay. All right. Donald Trump is there. Got nothing better to do with this time. Former casino guy. It might make sense. He's there. I'm not a Trump guy, but I can live with this. Somehow, I'm sure the CEO got a hold of the, 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 the TV folks in the booth in charge of live broadcast and said, give me more Trump time. So now I'm sitting, instead of watching a fight, I'm watching Trump shake the hands and stand with certain fighters and, you know, glad hand his way. He had come from a campaign speech next since he's now technically running for president. And he's there and the audience is cheering. And um, and somebody gave me a hard time for what I'm about to say. They said, hey, if it was Biden and people, would cheer, you know, it was just respect for the office. I go, you know, <laughs> that's not respect for the office. That's something else. There's people signing on to an agenda that he represents which is fine. But if you're trying to run a worldwide global organization, you, you know, uh, you, politicizing it when you're paying your employees 13%, where every other sports is 50%. It's just a, it's a, it's a bad look. It's a bad look. I, I feel like it's bread and circuses. What, what's, what's happening to corporations where they're There's no sanction for this. You, you know, I mean, I stopped shopping at Whole Foods when the guy said that uh, this former CEO said that Obama was a fascist. It's like, you want to politicize it? You pay the price for politicizing it. Now they've sold and now they're no longer owned by the same guy. So now I can go back to Whole Foods when I've got a few extra thousand dollars to buy an apple with. But uh, but yeah, Dana White is, uh, I, I think that this is the fish rots from the head. I think Ari Emanuel, Rahm Emanuel's brother, um, should tighten the reins. And I, I just, I think it's bad business, especially with 13%. Uh, let me give you an example of what that means. One of the hall of fame guys who fought was talking about his career earnings, $10 million. That's pretty good from a poor country boy from Oklahoma. He says, uh, uh the finance guy who at bloody elbow, the, did a breakdown said the fight that he made the most at, which is 1.3 million the UFC made $93 million, not gross, net. I'm, so I'm glad you're, you're advancing the fortunes of a guy who will sign on to whatever you want to do in the future, but the naked face of greed, and it just it, ju it just rubs me the wrong way as a fan. It well, makes it hard for me to enjoy. Well, I'm still, I'm still hung up on the idea that like showing Trump shows respect for the office if Trump had ever showed respect for the office, if Trump yeah. had showed respect for democracy in any way, right. anyway, I just I want to I want to end with this with this quote. Uh, I'm talking about kind of arrogance and the tech bro mindset. Uh, mm. It was in the New York Times last week. Paul Krugman Krugman was writing about tech leaders who say there is actually recession. What they're saying is that the government is hiding it, 
And he yeah. calls them recession truthers. And prominent among them is Elon Musk. So here's here's what he writes. Technology billionaires are especially susceptible to the belief that they're uniquely brilliant, able to instantly master any subject from COVID to the war in Ukraine. They could afford to hire experts to brief them on world affairs, but that would only work if they were willing to listen when the experts told them things they didn't want to hear. So what happens instead all too often is that they go down the rabbit hole. Their belief in their own genius makes them highly gullible, easy marks for grifters claiming that the experts are all wrong. And I think that's what is kind of the through line here, whether it's Dana White, the UFC, you know, the potential for bad new bosses or just bad bosses in general. It's that contempt prior to investigation. I know everything, that kind of arrogance and hubris that makes it so that they can't hear anything that is going to make them change their perspective or see something different. And it also exerts a chilling effect through the organization because you're nobody's hiding how business works there. Right. <laughs> you know? So if you don't like it, you take it on the arches. That's your only option. There's no yeah. improving it, no changing it. And that's, you know, we're happier the greater agency we have. That's a situation which you pretty much have zero agency. So yeah. yeah. All right. Well, that's about all we've got time for. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. WTF at badbossreef.com. And we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thanks, everybody. Yes. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Bad Boss Brief with your hosts, Eugene S. Robinson and Stephanie Payrollo. You can check out more of their work by visiting consigliera.substack.com for Stephanie and eugenesrobinson.substack.com for Eugene. You can also find Eugene at Mr. Sleep 3, that's the number 3, on Instagram. Send us your questions or comments to WTF at badbossbrief.com and be sure to join us right here on your favorite podcast platform for more insights every other week. Until next time, don't be an asshole at work.